and welcome to Conversations on Karate. I'm Sue. I'm Greg. Hi. Hello. We're not going to talk too much today because uh, we have a special guest coming on. We do. On. We have a very special guest. And uh, so this is because a few weeks ago I went to Ian Abernethy's Training Matrix seminar in Wincanton, which was completely brilliant. I talked about it and raved about it. And while I was there, I asked him, would he come along onto the podcast? And he said he would. We're so pleased to welcome world-renowned karate expert Ian Abernethy onto our podcast. Hello, Ian. Hi, glad to be here. <laughs> good to well, have you. It's good to have you. Thanks so much. And uh, it has to be said, we're doing this very early in the morning. We are. Yeah, 7am. That's it, before the rest of the world is awake. Yeah. Yeah. Before any decent person's got out of bed yet. Well, it's good of you to give us your time, Ian. Thank you so much. My <laughs> I've pleasure. Gotta gotta say, I have to ask the very first thing I wanted to ask though was, you know, we're just getting started as a podcast and, and I asked you to to do this. You you do a lot of podcasts, but why did you say yes to us? because uh, I'm always happy to talk um, martial arts with anybody who wants to talk to me. You know, I've said that before, you see, I go, that's why I enjoy the seminars so much. I go to the seminars and I've got a room full of people who like the same stuff I like, whereas in my day-to-day life, I've struggled to find people that... <laughs> oh, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, I can bombard with, you know, the nuances of, of karate and self-defence and other topics. So it's always fun to, um, to talk to just to people. And uh, yeah, I was happy to, to, to chat martial arts. That's, that's brilliant. Well, obviously, I came to see you at your seminar, which was based on the training matrix. And there were some um, bits on that. I know you listened to our last podcast, which was, uh, and we particularly picked up on levels of training consent in, um, in, in sparring, you know, physical impact and things. I'm not expressing myself right. What am I trying to say, Greg? Consent between the two people training together, the level that you want to train at with each other. And how you kind of agree it before you start training? Yeah, yeah. Cause I, I thought I thought you did a superb job of unpacking that because I think this is one of these. It, it, I also think it's one of those good illustrations of things that are more subtle than sometimes people realise, but are nevertheless massively important. So if you think of it from a, from a self defence point of view, one of the key things is that people think they have autonomy over themselves that they have a right uh, to defend themselves. Uh, and one of the things that martial arts can sometimes unwittingly erode is that sense of self. Because you, you walk into the dojo and the instructor is the big barking guy at the front of the room who tells you to do exactly what they tell you to do. And even if you don't like it, do it. Well, that, that's incredibly bad self-defense training because what you're encouraging is the exact... Yeah. You're encouraging people to um, forfeit their own consent and to bow down to the most generally speaking, the most able person physically in the room, you see. Yeah. So, so I think giving people a, the right to be able to opt in and out of training as they see fit, while still encouraging them positively to, to push their own boundaries, but not forcing them or demanding that they do so, I think it's a really important thing. And I, I'm really pleased that uh, you picked up on that as, as, as part of the teachings. I know we did talk about it quite a bit on that day. Yeah, is, is that something that you've always had when you were sort of coming up through the ranks, or is that something that you started doing when you were teaching? Uh, it, it's, um, I, I think I've been really lucky that I've had good instructors. So, so they they have they've not allowed me to um, 
retreat to the comfort zone, if that's, if that's what I mean. You know, they've, they've positively encouraged me to push my boundaries. And if I am wanting to take it easy, they'll be the first person that I think you're taking it easy. But, but, but I, I've, I've never felt, you know, like you will do this whether you want to do it or not. You know, I, I've, I've never had instruction like that. Um, but I'm, I'm also, I, I tend to be quite, I analyse myself and all I'm doing quite a lot. I tend to be constantly thinking about things. And, and I think, it, for, for me, it's something I've started to emphasise more over the last maybe five years, ten years or so. Um, this idea of, because it was a, a thought I had on, on discipline. So when we talk about discipline in a class, and, and it occurred to me that there's essentially two kinds of discipline, one positive and one negative. So you've got the discipline where the instructor encourages everyone to have self-discipline, to yeah. organize themselves, to push themselves. And then you've got the kind of, I will beat you with a big stick unless you do what I say style discipline, whether that be you know a metaphorical or sometimes even a literal stick. Uh, and I think one is a very positive thing, you know, encouraging people to be the best versions of themselves and, and helping them do that. that. That's a good thing. But then I also think, though, the idea of um, taking away people's autonomy is a, is a very negative thing. And we see that a lot within martial arts, I think. But, yeah, and I think it's an interesting point because I think people sometimes don't differentiate between the two because it's quite a subtle line, do you know what I mean? I think people struggle to see the difference between just a hard instructor and someone who's actually trying to encourage them, but in a, like you said, a disciplined way. Yeah, well, I, I think, I mean, I'll point to Peter Considine as, I think, probably the epitome of that. Yeah. You know, when I've trained with uh, uh, Peter, Peter drives your heart. You know what I mean? But, but there's never a sense that he's, he's bullying you or pushing you. No, no, no. You know what I mean? He, he'll, he'll, he'll push me, you know, more, Ian. Come on, more, more. He'll, he'll push me that way. But, but in terms of the days when I've turned up, like I'm a bit sick or injured, it's never been, well, I don't care. You know yeah. what I mean? It, 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 there's always that element of, I, I, am, I am pushing you for your benefit. And I'm yeah. clear that that's what he's doing. He's not pushing me because of, an ego-based thing or, or, or a desire to control everyone in the room. or it, It's basically, you know, I'm trying to help you here. You know what I mean? And, and I think that, that that's a, a clear demarcation. Because yeah. I think sometimes we erode, you know, I mean, it's a bit, I mean I'm, a, I'm a 47-year-old, you know, male who's been training for a very long period of time. But you, you think about, like, if you've got a 15-year-old girl in the class yeah. who, who's just finding a way in the world, who's in the early stages of adulthood, you know, I mean, um, what we want to make sure that, you know, she has that strong sense of self, that strong sense of autonomy, you know, that I uh, am in full command of myself and I will defend myself and I will demand respect for myself. You know, and I think sometimes instructors undermine that with, no, no, do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it or I'll bark at you. It's exactly the exact opposite of what we want, you know. And as you say, it is a subtle distinction, but I think it's very important that instructors get the the head around it for the benefit of the students, really. And students get the head around it, because if they find that they're getting more of the big stick style of discipline, they can maybe conclude, this is not what I want, you know. You want someone who's going to help you push yourself, not someone who's going to be a mini tyrant in the dojo, you know. Yeah, I think, like you've you've said before, sometimes you end up with clubs that make tough people tougher and not kind of just your average person yeah. better? No, well, that, that's, that's right, because I think, I think what you do with, with some, um, I also say it's that testosterone gone mad, where it's, um, oh, yeah, we don't have mats on the floor, there's no mats in the street, we don't wear gloves, you know, no one's going to pull a punch in the street, so we don't pull punches here. Yeah. And, and, and you have this, this full-on, from day one, very macho, unthinking approach. And then what happens is, because you've got clubs like that, and they're tough clubs, not because anything we're teaching is of any value, it's because they self-select. So the people who could already deal with that, 
will remain and the people who can't will be driven away. Yeah. So I, I always think you should do, you judge a method by what it can do for the least natural student, not what it can do for people who can already do it, you know, like say. Did you find it easy to strike a balance between the two if you've got like a diverse class? If you've got someone who's, who's kind of really new and then someone who's quite into it? Yeah, no, I, I think we, and we're very careful about how we uh, structure the, um, the the training. So the, the idea is that what, what I'm ideally wanting is that students always feel challenged, but they're always just outside what they feel comfortable with. So, you know, if they're feeling 100%, yeah, I can do everything that's been asked of me, then they're stagnating, they're not progressing. Yeah. So if they're feeling this is a little bit complicated, I'm a little bit adrenalised, I'm a little bit nervous, but in an exciting, not a terrifying way, then I think they're naturally growing to that. So yeah. that's how we do it with our... Um, sparring's probably a good example of that, because with the sparring drills, uh, each grading that we do has very basic... Uh, drills to start with, like they'll learn a couple of basic grips and a couple of basic blocking drills as a beginner. Then the next grade adds another layer on and another layer on. So by the time they get the brown belt, they're engaging in all inspiring with throwing, locking, choking, strangling, defend against multiple opponents, simulated weapons, all this kind of stuff. But they're, they're confident in doing it because we've built it up gradually over time. So I, I don't believe, you know, sometimes people have this view there's people who can fight and people who can't, and it's something you're born with. Well, I don't believe that to be true. No, I believe no, no. that anyone's capable of doing it, but you've got to structure it correctly to bring that out. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I know from my experience with a lot of kind of more traditional-based places that you you get to kind of a higher level and you're expected to spar based on your your Ippon-style kumite routines, and it, for me, it's never worked out like that. Whereas the way you've just described it, it sounds quite clever in the way you've done it. You start off basic from day one. And then by the time you get to Bramble, you're actually competent in that level. Well, I, I always point to uh, Dan Anderson for this because this is for, for those who maybe don't know, Dan Anderson was a four times US champion. He, he wrote a, a seminal book called um, uh, American Freestyle Karate on like guide to points fighting. Dan's also a, a master grade in harness. And when he visited the UK, I, I took the opportunity to be chauffeur for two weeks oh, yeah. in return for private harness lessons. You know what I mean? So learn a bit of stick and knife so we do a yeah. couple of hours every day and then we go to a seminar in the evening and I'd drive him here and there well uh, I found that Americans like castles right because it's one of the few things they don't have of their own so <laughs> I, I'd take him to the, the, the castle in our town and, and showing him it and we're walking away from the castle and we're just chatting about all things martial and, and I was I, I'd made the point that sparring is not well taught and, and Danny's brilliant at building up drills you know for um, competitive sparring, and he said, "Yeah, he said, uh, he said most people teach sparring in the same way that the Romans taught Christians to deal with lions." And I just burst out laughing. Yeah, it was pretty much my experience. You know, <laughs> you know, um, you'll learn to spar by sparring. And, and, and I think um, I was always paired up with appropriate people and stuff like that. But there still wasn't, I think, generally in karate that that structure to it. So what drill are we going to teach to develop this specific attribute in a way that people can learn the required skill? And, and then you, you gradually layer on, so you're adding things in, so the student remains confident and competent as, as what they've been asked to develop, you see. And then you, we get our guys sparring in, you know, they, they enjoy it, we get them sparring in, in what some would regard as extreme ways, but they're always doing it with, a, you know, a big grin and, and, and nobody ever gets hurt, and, you know, it's... It, 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 Definitely, the way to do it is to structure it gradually over time. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, so like for example, like on the first, if I give an example, just for those who maybe don't know what we need. So, 
for the, the beginners, they learn uh, a neck and forearm grip, yeah. like basic grappling grip, and they move around with their partner. Uh, and then what they'll do, they'll do a triceps grips and an underarm grip, and they'll move around with the partner. Then we do playing for grips, sort of, and the emphasis on the word playing, so they just move their arms around, experiment with various grips. No great objective, just getting used to it. And then we have a drill where one of them moves forwards, throwing straight punches, jabs and crosses, and the other one parries it in with the opposite hand. So one of them gets confident in moving forwards and not getting hit back, and the other one gets the basic idea of blocking. And that's it. That's what the beginners do. Then the next layer on, we ask them, okay, now you've got to try and grapple for your partner's back. So they've got, they're have got not hitting one another, but they'll learn to control uh, limbs within that grappling yeah. framework. And we add the hook punches in so they can now start to cover and, and, and parry those off as well. So And, and you do it gradually that way with layering on in each one. And, and, and then you find that confidence is developed and, and everyone believes they can do it. Because I think most people, what tends to happen with a lot of people, they have a bad experience of sparring early on. That they mistakenly believe I can't spar, I can't fight, um, and then you can spend years trying to undo that because of that bad experiences they've had. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've I've seen it. I've experienced it. I I wouldn't be surprised if almost anyone hasn't had bad experiences in sparring, though. Ian, would you think think that most people have had something that's frightened them or put them off or set them back a bit? Well, I, th- I think yeah. I mean, the, the, the nature of what we do, you're always going to get some of those. But, but uh, and if you, if you view it like you know like a bank account, that would be a negative, that would be a withdrawal. But if, as long as you've got plenty of positives coming in, mm. so you know in, in any given training session, you know they've had ten positive experiences, and maybe you know one landed in a way they didn't like, or maybe that one opponent's a little bit intimidating. And that's all part of making progress, I think. But but, but but I think if what they're getting is, is reinforced, is I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, and then I find it scary and confusing that becomes almost self-perpetuating because then you erode all self-belief. And when they spar, they're running with that script of, I can't do this. And that makes them timid and hesitant and reluctant to try things, which in turn fosters further negative experiences. Yeah. Yeah. The the training that, um, one of the training drills that Greg's had me do a few times is we've, you know, we've done, right, I want you to do this combination jab cross jab sort of thing and then you go to spa but you have to use just that you know what i mean so you do that and then you know learn another combination and do that and i want you to do this kick and then that combination but you're sparring but you're pretty much only using that or you might do a few other things but you're focusing on that what i find that does is the focus becomes achieving that combination the focus has gone from i'm scared yeah it's a different way of coming into the spa much yeah. much calmer <laughs> way of doing it and i think um based on what you were saying about trigger levels that's a very good way of of dealing with that trigger level because you're bringing the focus out of whether you're afraid mm. and bringing the focus into what are you going to do now how are you going to do it you're going to do it well fast slow that kind of thing you know I, I, absolutely no no i'd certainly agree because then what you've got is it's not just a case of oh okay just fight you're saying Here's a specific objective I wish you to achieve within this drill. You know, so um, so you, you, you emphasize a particular skill you want to learn. And as you see on that trigger points thing, this is, so if you just got like a, a beginner and, and while this one punches at them, they, they're going to flinch or cower or turn away or something like that. So they have pre-existing habits that they'll be predisposed to enact when under stress. So what we need to do is, in order to erase those habits and give them newer, better ones, 
we need to train that little bit slower. So you, you mentioned this when you were chatting about the seminar, you know, and um, it's what I call a trigger point idea. When, when you get to a certain speed and level of intensity, instinct starts to take over. Um, now, obviously, that's good to check that you're, the instinct you have are good instincts, and we want to be training at that point. But if you want to instill something new, you need to train below that trigger point. Otherwise, you'll just you, you'll just do what you can already do. So if you want to learn that new combination, you could say, okay, I'm going to move forward to this combination, and the partner will block and parry. But they, they know I'm trying to do that combination, but they'll counter if I make a glaring error. And then as I get better, then obviously they can um, increase the levels of resistance and things, and then you're still maintaining that... Um, the objective and giving you a chance to instill that new skill without triggering pre-existing skills. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. Just just going back a, a step quickly, looking at combinations and things like that, how, how do you find that you, you balance your sparring through kind of the fighting side of it and the self-defence side of it? Yeah, well, we keep them... Uh, um, there obviously is some crossover, but we keep them separate. Yeah. So stu- students are aware of uh, which drills they're doing. So if they were doing a drill that involved um, guards up, nice and light on the balls of your feet, uh, moving around, looking to you know, close a gap, looking to create openings, looking to... You know, that, that kind of stuff. Tre- uh, looking to provoke uh, uh, trained responses, then, then I'm very clear this is a fighting drill. So this is, this is a drill based on out-dueling another martial art. So yeah. if we're looking for submissions or clever throws or something like that, this is a fighting drill. When they're doing drills where they're, they're looking to, uh, okay, this is your objective is to escape, your objective is to break free, um, your, your objective is to protect this person, um, this, this kind of thing, then they clear their self-defense drills. So, because they are, because the objective is different, one of them is based on winning the fight, in whatever way we've agreed to fight, and the self-defense-based drills are on, in, uh, the emphasis is on not getting harmed, or, or, or the person you're protecting not getting harmed. So they are quite different, and I try and do my best to label the two, so the students aren't confused between the two. Yeah, that that protecting others thing going off on that. You're you're kind of, I think you're the only person I've seen do that, which is is quite interesting from a a karate standpoint. I've, I don't think I've ever seen anyone else do it. Where did you pick that up from? Is that something you sort of just introduced yourself, or did you get that from somewhere? Uh, um, <laughs> um, it, it, no, well, one of the places I got it from, you know, you're saying a lot of karate could don't do it, but let's, if we look at um, Anko Itosu, so if, well, yeah, if yeah. Funakoshi is the father of modern karate, then Itosu would be the grandfather. Right? Yeah. You know, Itosu is undoubtedly one of the most influential karate ever when you look at the effect his ideas have had. Uh, and in 1908, he writes, writes his 10 precepts, and the very first line of the 10 precepts is uh, karate is not only practiced for your benefit, it can be used to protect one's family or master. So the idea of karate being used to protect others is, is line one, principle one, of one of the oldest karate texts we've got, and, and yet most people don't practice it. I think part of the problem there is the term self-defense, because you just think of self, you know, and not others. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. How, yeah. How, how would you give advice to someone looking to introduce that kind of training? Um, and and to to kind of balance it within a the framework they've already got. Primarily, it's it's um, it's a it's a live sparring drill, but just as we've talked about, you give them the key elements that um, will help them achieve their objectives, and then start to drop it in. So there's things like you know um, tactical things like don't grab at 
or aim to grapple because when you're tied in with one person, other person get the people you're protecting. Understand that the person you're protecting is going to freeze. You've got to use your voice strongly. You've got to use physical commands. You've got to be able to move, so try and put the person behind you in a way that they're, they're holding you in some way, except that the person may panic and then hold you still, so you need to get them moving again. And it's, it's all um, working those things in, practicing those individual skills and then dropping them back into live drills and also accepting it's difficult. Sometimes, I blame martial arts movies for this, right? Because the premise of all martial arts movies is you learn the trick and once you've learned the trick, you're invincible. So, you know, so, <laughs> I wish that was true. It's so ubiquitous in the movies that it's, uh, it, a lot of martial artists think they don't think that way, but they do. Yeah. They, they, they do. I see this all the time. So, like, for example, I've got a video on YouTube that people could check out on protecting others, which covers the basics. And I'm quite clear there that this is a nightmare situation. You've got an untrained person who's unpredictable, who you don't know what they're going to do. You've got um, multiple people attacking you both, which is a problem in it. It's, you know, multiple opponents are a problem in itself, but you've got this additional complication of a third person to protect. It's really difficult. There are no good solutions. And if you look at the YouTube comments below that, there's a thousand more what ifs, what if, what if. Because they want the magic solution that yeah. makes all problems. You know, yeah. you just do this thing and you'll be fine. Well, it's not like that for that drill. You know, there's, there's things you can do that make a successful outcome more likely, but there's nothing you can do that will guarantee a successful outcome mm. because there's so many variables and so many moving parts. Well, this is something that we were talking about at the end of our last podcast when we were talking about another martial arts channel that we enjoy watching who were talking about scenarios. And saying that the the one that they'd been looking at was a highly specific scenario with a highly specific set of things to do. And that you can't, Greg was saying, you can't work like that. You can't always have a highly specific scenario and then have a highly specific way of resolving it. Because yeah. life's not like that. Life's panicky and messy when things start to happen. Anything can, you know, happen or change. So you're talking about a, a series of actions that you can take that will help. Yes, and that's at a principle level. These are, are, are like strategic and tactical levels. These these are things that you can that you can do that are more likely to lead to a successful outcome. But we're not talking necessarily about physical technique, because it, it, it's more to do with um, strategic and tactical thinking. Uh, but th there are so many variables in there as well. I think Rory Miller makes a fantastic distinction where he talks about um, the management of fear and danger. So to manage danger. Is, requires that you can actually do things, as he says, and to, remind, uh, to, to manage fear, you just believe that you have to be able, you can do things. So I think sometimes what people want is give me a very specific scenario which I can drill, and then this fantasy scenario that I've got where I come out unscathed every single time, that makes me feel <laughs> less afraid. So let's run with that one. You know what I mean? So, so it, it achieves its objective of, of removing the fear, but it doesn't achieve its objective of doing anything to remove the danger. If anything, in fact, it can make it worse. Yeah. So I think that, that, that key, as, as you say, is practicing those drills, accepting the mess, and trying you know, you, to, to do the right things on a principled level, accepting that you, know, you can do everything right, but they do everything right, and there's more of them, and it goes wrong, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, messy scenario. So it's really training for confidence, isn't it? Training for being aware that anything can happen you know just and, and like we were saying before with trigger points dr drilling it over and over again different things but very basic things that you can do so that you know what you can do 
to encourage a successful outcome. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I, that, that's exactly it. So you, you, you do... And the nice thing about the dojo training as well is, you know, it's one of my old instructors had this phrase where he said, it's better to die a thousand times in the dojo than once in reality. <laughs> Which I thought was a great quote. You know, so in, in the dojo, you can make as many mistakes as you like. Um, and so you, you can do a scenario, you could um, make a mistake. So that's you doing something that you didn't need to do that made the situation worse. So, so having made that mistake, the student then realized, okay, that didn't work. So we don't kind of like lambast them over it or dwell on it. Okay, okay, lesson learned. Let's do the drill again. Don't do that. You know, so, so what, after, after lots and lots of doing this, doing the right thing, for this, in this ever-changing scenarios in which they'll be doing, um, becomes more likely. Now, that still doesn't guarantee that they'll be successful, because as I say, the, the enemy can make mistakes, which you can exploit, or they make, make no mistakes, in which case you, know, you may be in, in trouble too, but yeah. the odds increase. The, the chances of being successful increase. Yeah. yeah that's good. Speaking of, of, kind of the self-defence side of training, like we are there, how do you find kind of the best way of introducing it into the syllabuses because when I was coming up with the syllabus I was kind of putting self-defense in along with the karate stuff and I just found that the syllabus would become so massive um, mm. that you just have so much in there do you think it's a good idea to kind of put your basic self-defense stuff in the first couple of gradings and then kind of just leave it for a couple and reinforce it down the line or do you kind of piece it together because my thought is you know you get people that, that want to learn self-defense when they come to karate and, and realistically you want to give them stuff within maybe yeah. the first six months or so rather than making them wait 20 years before they get to a decent level? No, no, absolutely. So this is, this is the thing where um, the, the, the level of competence comes into play. Yeah. So I think this is where um, uh, martial arts instructors are often terrible self-defense instructors because us three are chatting here as people who found martial arts to be something we find massively enjoyable and yeah. fun. So, so, you know, I mean, you know, the chances of most people living in this country being involved in a violent situation is minimal. But so it's not that's not our primary driving force. We want to cover that, but we're doing it because we like it. Yeah. You know I mean, we're doing it because we, we find it fun. So if you say to someone who comes to you, say, I want to learn self-defense and your answer is, OK, let's train together for the next 40 years. Yeah. But they're going to go, no, I don't want to make that time investment. Martial arts aren't my thing but I want to learn some basic self-defense. And uh, Jamie Club has a, which I think is such a useful distinction, where he says self-defense is like going on a first aid course. It does not make you a GP or a heart surgeon or a brain surgeon. It means you've got basic skills that will help you, you know, in the initial stages of a, an accident, you know. Self-defense-wise, if you're going into double figures in terms of the hours, you're no longer teaching self-defense in its pure sense. You've moved on yeah. to something else. You know, so I agree with you completely. For the beginners, uh, we should have the, the, you know, we should be talking about like legalities, awareness, basic escape things, preemption, the kind of things you'd cover on a fundamental self-defense course. Yeah. Then, then of course, what's going to happen is, um, as martial artists, um, the the percentage that they'll do on the self-defense side of things will be bigger. Because, the, for example, if someone came to a self-defense course, I wouldn't dream of covering protecting others. You know, no. because then they're never going to drill that skill yeah. to be able to make it competent. But with a martial artist in the longer term, yep, that's that's a part of your self-defense component. Things like um, like weapons, de dealing with weapons. Again, someone who comes on, on a basic self-defense course will never have enough training to make that work. 
So we, we just acknowledge, look, pinning that, if you want to be able to do that, it's going to t- take a lot more practice. So th- th- within the, the martial artists will learn more about self-defense. And, and that, but that higher level stuff, the protecting others, that will be a little bit later on. But the, the fundamentals I would cover on a self-defense course, I want covered with my um, karate students as well as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. That's very wise because if people come along saying they want to do self-defense, like you say, that is not the same as saying they want to train in karate. No, yeah. And people look at martial arts movies, like you say, and they think, oh, if I can learn to do that, then I can fight everyone. It's just, yeah, <laughs> it's not a realistic way of looking at what's actually going to happen, is it? No, and, and you know, I mean, I know, I mean, I've listened to you guys talk on your podcast, so I know you get it. You know what I mean? But, but like, the vast majority of martial artists, I would say, don't understand the difference. They, they don't understand that martial arts and fighting and self-defense are not the same, and, and, and they treat them as if they are the same, and they're, they're very dismissive of the vital self-defense skills that have nothing to do with martial arts or fighting. You know, I had this conversation even recently. You know, I was talking about, you know, awareness skills and home security skills and, 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 and you know, tra- travel security considerations, personal security, looking at personal behavior. You know, the, these kind of things are key. And it gets, you know, people instantly dismiss it to things like, you know, you get the misogynistic don't wear short skirts and make sure you lock your door when you go out. You know I mean? It's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the reduce all that to that. And, and, and what it is, is there's two levels of that. One is they don't know that they don't know these things. And, and the second thing, which, you know, you can be forgiven for that, but the second thing is they have no interest in learning it, you know, um, yet still purport to teach self-defense, which is why I say, and I believe it to be true, that the best self-defense... I'll give an example of this, right? One of my mother's friends has never done martial arts in her life, right? She's never stepped inside a dojo, but she, she's involved with a charity that do... Uh, the Susie Lamplew Trust, for those mm. who remember Susie Lamplew. I remember. Know, so, yeah, yeah. So, so, so and it, they do work where they go into schools and, and, and they talk to, um, to people about, you know, uh, personal security and keeping yourself safe. They are excellent, I would say, self-defense courses. And no one will ever tell you he's out to make a fist or anything like that. That's way more useful, way more useful than having a martial artist teach you how to get out of a headlock. Yeah. You know, but, but, but unfortunately, though, they, they, they don't get the difference. So she is an excellent self-protection instructor. You know, where I've seen brilliant martial artists teach self-defense and just get it completely wrong. Yeah, no, I yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I've, I've been to places before where... I've been doing jiu-jitsu for a while. Well, I say I've been doing it for a while. I've done a few classes. And one of the ways they kind of structure the training is we're going to start with a self-defense technique and then we're going to move on to the jiu-jitsu. But the self-defense technique is just a jiu-jitsu technique <laughs> kind of put into a street-style attack, which, you know, it's, it's a good technique. It's a good technique, but it just doesn't fit the context it's made for. No, no, no. And Yeah, I, you, you, you see that all over the place. I just don't know how it's ever going to change, do you know what I mean? Yeah, the good thing is, I think this is where the internet's slowly helping. Yeah. Because, like, you know, and I'm aware I'm a sample of one, so you've got to be careful with that. But but I do know that a regular question that I'll get asked by a social media or email or stuff like that at seminars, I I now, you know, this is from instructors, I now acknowledge these softer skills I I don't have the first clue on. So where do I get that information? You know, I mean, how do I start learning that? The, you know, the questions that you know that, that people should be asking if they wish to teach 
um, uh, self-protection and self-defense. So I, I think that there's, there's definitely a, a growing awareness that it's not the same. And there's some, you know, I've mentioned Rory Miller already, but you think of you, Jeff Thompson's, your Peter Considine's, Rory Miller, you know, people like that, Mark McYoung, yeah. who, who are doing fantastic work in, in educating people about the difference. And so the information's there for anyone who wants it. Yeah, and Jeff's stuff's brilliant. Even, you know, like 20, 25 years later since he's released it, it still holds up today and it's, it's still really relevant. And I, I point a lot of people in that direction. It's really good stuff. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, it's fantastic, you know what I mean? And, but you, you see how, like, um, for those, you know, who may not have... Jeff likes his martial arts. You know, I, I've trained under Jeff where we've been doing head-out roundhouse kicks and wrestling-style suplexes. And so oh, yeah, yeah. never use in, in self-defense, but yeah. it, it, it's, it's mar- for the martial arts side of it. And Peter Constantine's another one, you know. You talk to Peter, Peter loves the martial arts and loves the fight side of things. Um, but they're very clear on the demarcation. So when they go, okay, self-defense, we're now talking about not lifelong martial artists. We're talking members of the public. We're talking about escaping from criminals, not out fighting other martial artists. You know, we've got legal considerations. We've got the, the, the softer skills and the personal security issues, which are way more effective for most people. So, yeah, they're good at marking the demarcation. So yeah. another, just, like, just jumping into my mind there, I was asked recently to do a, a self-defense course for the Women's Institute, so for those who listeners may not know, the average age of the members of the Women's Institute where I was, I'd say it was about 70. Right. <laughs> so yeah. they said, can we do a self-defence course? So I'm not going to go, right, he's out to throw a cross. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, had, we had a talk about, okay, statistically, for your age bracket, living in the part of the world that you do, these are the types of crime you're more likely to be exposed to. These, these, these are the modes of operation of criminal behaviour. Uh, the good news for you is you are less likely to be a victim of violent crime than any other age bracket. You know what I mean? So don't instill paranoia and make them realise the thing. We went through it all that way. We didn't do a single physical technique because it wasn't appropriate for that, that, that age range. But again, when, when I've done it for, like I, I did one recently at a college for a, a, a group of 18, 19-year-old boys, well, that becomes different. Yeah. You know, based on, on the statistics as well, you see. And on that one, I did do, you know, the preemption in order to escape, but that was the only physical technique we did. Yeah, that makes sense. It does. I mean, yeah, if you're in nightclubs, you're out late at night, it's a very, very different thing than going, you know, being in the high street and, yeah. and somebody trying to steal your handbag kind of type of crime. But I remember a, a story from a while ago, somebody who trained in singing, when she did get mugged, she just made the loudest noise that she or the mugger had ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> it ended the situation really fast because uh, because he was terrified. <laughs> this huge noise came at him that he, he wasn't expecting at all. And, you know, it's a really good self-defence technique. That's something that I've always been taught is, like, make a lot of noise and make it fast. Well, the, the, um, the, a friend of mine, uh, Jordan, who I've got, I've got an interview with him for my podcast, which we've recorded, I just need to edit together. Um... Uh, um, and he uh, teaches like a lot of women self-defense courses and uh, there, was a, there was a girl that he taught a, a course to she was out running and she'd been attacked it made the national news in America because she absolutely battered this attacker oh I think I saw with, this with, actually with, yeah uh, all she could remember was palm heel so she just, she just she, people want to see the news report if you just type good morning America Seattle you know what I mean um, run a jogger they'll find it um um uh, and all she could remember was to hit with the palm heel. So she was screaming expletives at him as she hit him with the palm heel. So it was all mindset and very basic technique, but it worked. Yeah. 
you know, so when they interviewed Jordan on national, um, you know, uh, TV in America, he said, what advice would you give to self-defense for women? And he, and he gave sound advice. He said, make lots of noise and fight like a savage. Yeah. You know, and, and Jordan makes the point, and he's, he's completely right on this, that what happens is when martial artists teach self-defense, like, for, so for example, if you're teaching a palm heel, if I was teaching to my karate class, it would be, right, here's exactly how your fingers need to be, here's how your hip movement needs to be, here's how the advancement needs to be, here's how, you know, and you give them lots of technical detail. But if you've got someone doing a one-day course or, or, or a three-week course, six-week course, if you start getting into technical nuances with them, all they learn is, oh, this is complicated, I can't do it, it's going to take a long time to master. So if, if you just go smash the pad, great, smash it harder. It might be a crude and horrible technique that could be greatly improved with efficiency. But if you've got it, yeah, that'll, that'll do. That, that, that's near enough. And, and they've got the confidence to employ it and can employ it aggressively. A again, that's one of the differences, not getting into the rabbit hole of the nuance of high-level technique in the way a martial arts would. Yeah. I, sh I showed it to a friend of mine the other day, you know, who's got no physical strength at all. And I showed it to her and, and she said, I can do this. And I said, yeah, just do that on someone's nose and they will be, they will give you space. There is no way around it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just showed it to her and said, just do that hard. Put your weight behind it and someone will give you space. And she loved it. Absolutely loved it. She knows she won't get, you know, she won't hurt her hand with doing that. So I, and I was really delighted to be able to show it to her. And I got, I saw that one from you. Obviously I'd done palm heel strikes before, but that particular drill is, I love it. I love yeah, that the drill. Palm and the hammer fist. Yeah, 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 Sue's yeah. favourite drill. <laughs> yeah. Well, Greg did a course for us on a grading we just did, and uh, he ran a course for us, and he made everyone do that drill. And I could feel him thinking, yeah, get the aggression going. <laughs> <laughs> just before yeah, the grading. Well, that, that, that's exactly right, because where, where that drill is, um, it's, I, I know I told this story at the, um, uh, the seminar we were, we were at, Mm. But, but it's just good. It's real simple. It's just you keep hitting the pad until a partner drops it. When they drop it down, you hammer fist it. And, and the idea is that it's just done as aggressively as possible. The whole point of that drill is just to develop that, you know, that switch that people go. And I think everyone's got it. We're all thoroughbred survivors. Every single one of our ancestors survived long enough to have children. There's not a human being alive that doesn't have finely honed survival instincts if we can get in touch with them. And just getting people to get in touch with the fact that they are powerful naturally. They can move well, time that with aggression, you know, and, and then they can have a technique which, you know, may not be the most efficient technique in the world, but it's certainly a workable technique. Just, you know, just get them to do the simple things aggressively, you know, and that's, that's your self-defense skills, not the high-level things you would need to outfight another skilled martial artist. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you found this, but when I started doing kind of the quote-unquote self-defense stuff more, I think you, sometimes you become so engrossed in it, you drop all that other stuff mm. to, to your detriment, really, because I, I definitely found that. Looking back, I wish I'd kept more of a hand in both because now I'm enjoying more of the, the competitive side of stuff again. How do you find that... Do, do you find that a lot with people starting to do the kind of the, the bunkai self-defence side of things more? Yes, the, the, definitely. I, I have, I have a, a YouTube video recorded, which is now yet, called My Biggest Karate Mistake. All right. <laughs> and it's exactly what you've just described. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so that, that was it. So I went through a period in my 20s, possibly into my early 30s, where I went, all I care about is, is, is the self-defense element. Yeah. Because I was of the view that it was honest and it was objective. Yeah. And, and it was a real-world measure, not something 
arbitrary. You know, it was you know it was it was it was truthful and honest, and that was the one I was going to go with. But but exactly what you say, it was definitely to my detriment because then I. I, I didn't care about the health benefits of training. I didn't care about the enjoyment of fighting another martial artist. I didn't care about learning a skill just for the fun of learning a skill. I, I dropped all of that. I, I, and it wasn't like that made me massively better the self-protection side of things either. It, 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 if anything, it just caused stagnation. But, but when I was able to get back to enjoying all the elements of it, and that was through the guidance of Peter and Jeff. They were the ones telling me, look, don't do that. You know, I mean, there's no need to do that. Enjoy all this stuff and benefit from this stuff for, for what it is. Uh, when I was able to get back in touch with that, I found that the you still need to be mindful to keep them all separate and, and, and firmly in their own lanes. But the the, the enjoyment element is there. The, 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 and there are uh, bleed-over attributes from each as well, you see. And it, more than anything else, it just makes it more fun. Yeah, definitely. I think I think a lot with a lot of people, definitely with me, is, is the Bunkai stuff was relatively new at that point. And you kind of just run into it with everything you've got, and then you realise that you've mm. you've left out a lot of the other stuff as well. I call it going bunkai daft. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I see people who do that. So they give like even on the they start looking at the cat and they start to see the efficiency of what's in there. And I understand that it's bright, new, shiny, and, and everyone gets excited by it, and that's a good thing. I'm, I'm pleased that more and more people are doing it. That's definitely positive. But I think sometimes there's a throw the baby out with the bathwater element where they go right. Uh, I'm not going to do any work on Kian anymore. I'm going to do next to no work on the solo cutter anymore. I'm, I'm just going to bash pads and, and, and fight. And what the trouble is that is what the tense happen is the level of the quality of the technique tends to diminish because they're less mm. mindful of it. So they get the mix wrong. So instead of becoming more effective, uh, it can actually be to the, the detriment to a degree because the, the fundamentals start to bleed away. Then over time, they, they suffer. And the, the other one is sometimes instructors who do have that high level of skill that, because they've developed high level basic, you know, solid basics, they then lose interest in teaching that to the next generation coming up. And, and they, therefore, they have that skill, but they just want to teach the things that they find fun and exciting and enjoyable. And again, they, they, you need to get the mix. I think we do too much Keon within karate generally. Yeah, for sure. But, but to do none at all. Um, is is also problematic. I think you know that it's getting the mix right. Yeah, I, I I like your podcast that you did on Keon, making it the right kind of Keon training. Um, I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit because the, one of the things I found is is obviously when you're doing your strict Shotokan basics, it's all very nice and it looks good, but then when you try and translate it to pads and things like that, you you do need to tweak <laughs> it. You just do. There's just no way around it. You do need to tweak it, but I like doing. I, I find for my training because obviously I'm. I've, I've only just turned brown, so completely different from you guys. But I find that I need the mix, definitely. I know that there's, um, I've, I've heard that you shouldn't be doing any keyhole not against pads, but I like the mix because it brings me back to getting the technique perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you, I like that. I don't know, as a student, I like it. You make sure it's perfect, keep coming back to that, and then keep coming back to getting it right on the pads. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. Because um, so I think the uh, the, the point about um, the, the kind of key on you do in the air, I think, is, is, is key. I do believe there is a place for that because what it, it does is it removes um, outside distractions to your own awareness of your movement. 
So if you're always working with pads and you're always working with a partner, there's always something external that you're checking against. Now, obviously, you need that external check because that's the ultimate measure of whether the technique's good or not. If you hit the pad and there's no power, it's a weak technique. If you, if you try and take your opponent over and they don't go over, then it was a bad technique. But, but when we've identified what the problem is with the technique, there, there can be a place for saying, right, let's just remove the pad for a minute. Let's just go through it in the air. Let, 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 let's, let's do it in the air so you can be mindful of look where your hip is or where your hand is. So they're not looking for the big bang on the pad. They're thinking about where is my little twat when I do this? Where is my knee pointing? So I think there's a need for both external awareness and internal awareness. So I do think there is, is, a, is a point there is a point for Keon. So I would agree with you completely that the idea of doing it on the pads all the time, I think doesn't necessarily, it's not that efficient um, as doing a mix of pad work where they're looking at the pad and then the internal stuff where they're looking at the, their own awareness and their own body movement and learning that high degree of muscle control. And then there's also the point that whatever you're doing needs to be functional. Because like, you made the point about the short can um, basics, you know, yeah. sometimes. So you get things like, you know, uh, let's do a, um, a shutuki followed by a mayageri, followed by a nukate, followed yeah. by a, you know. And there's just these random sequences of movement put together. And, and then you go, well, how would you use that? And they go, well, you wouldn't. But you learn, you learn a movement and you learn. Well, I think, well, learn movement with something functional. You know, you can get all the benefits of kion. Uh, without having to waste time going into it like a cul-de-sac with it, you know. Just, just, so the Keon should be applicable. So for that, we take sequences out of Kata, which gives us pretty much our self-defense Keon, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and then adapted sequences from Kata. And then we also have things where we'll do jab, lead leg, roundhouse, cross, back leg, roundhouse, you know. So that's more like the fighting-based yeah. Keon as well. But, but, but everything in theory is direct, directly applicable. You know? Yeah. That's what the live drills are, isn't it? That's where you have a series of techniques and then you practice them against your partner. And then you add something in and then they make it more complicated. That is literally what that is, isn't it? Mm. That's it. And then you've got, because you've got the full mix, you know, that, that, that training matrix idea. So you say, I've got the pads to check the power. I've got the work with the partner to make sure I can land the shot. You know, um, uh, to make sure the, the, the efficiencies, uh, the, the movement's correct. I'll do compliant with the practice partner with a uh, uh, practice with the partner to refine the technique. I'll do solo practice on my own to make sure that I am in control of my own body to a sufficient degree. So you, you mix all those elements together, and, and you get something that is enjoyable, safe, productive, develops meaningful skill. Mm. It's normally when people are missing an element. So like life practice is a common one that people just totally omit. Or it's that the mix is wrong, so they're doing all the right things but in the wrong proportions. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's like it's like a recipe in food. You know, you need all the right ingredients in there, but you also need them in the right proportions as well. And then you've got food that tastes good and is nutritious. Yeah. And uh, and the combination. I was thinking just a few minutes ago when you were talking about um, uh, bunkai and doing too much of bunkai. I I've, I love that I've been taught the bunkai for so long throughout my training because now. It's starting finally to click as I learn a new kata. <laughs> I'm doing a movement and thinking, you know, for the first time, I wonder if this means that. I wonder yeah. if this movement is actually leading to that movement. You know, starting to actually see it for what it is, not to change the kata, but just to start thinking, I wonder how I might use that. Yeah, and I think that, that if you're doing bunkai regularly, yeah, and, and it's a fundamental part of what you do. It, it makes a, a, a tremendous, like you say, it makes a tremendous amount of sense, and the kata starts to speak. 
Yeah. You, you, you understand them a lot better. So I've got, like, a, a, the one I always remember, I had an orange belt come running into our dojo once, you know what I mean? So it was a start of class, and he, like, guy in his 40s, but quite, you know, really enthusiastic, quite an excitable character, you know, good fun to train with. And he comes running in, oh, Ian, Ian, I'm just, you wouldn't believe what I've seen. I, I was looking for Bunkai on YouTube, and I saw this thing, and there's this guy standing in the middle with eight people around him in his amber eye, <laughs> and they're all, and it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever, you know, and I'm thinking, yep. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of it out there, but I thought it was great for him, having been raised on Bunkai and Kata, the whole process makes sense. And, and you can see oddities for what they are. I think part of the reason that Kata so widely misunderstood is because we've got a lot of this, this baggage that we've picked up. So within karate, there's misunderstandings around it, and that gets reflected on people outside of karate looking in. They see those misunderstandings enacted, and then that further cements those misunderstandings. But I think, yeah, once you, once you, like, like, you know, Sue's point, once you've been doing it regularly... And, and, and it's an intrinsic part of what you do. It's not a, something we do once in a while as a bolt on extra. It's like you guys do it and we do it. It's an intrinsic key part of practice. Then you see how it all hangs together a lot more. Then you see the process. And you also see that a lot of the criticisms that people level against Kata aren't valid when it's correctly approached. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very true. I like the, the podcast you did with um, Stefan Kestin was really good when you were talking about that. Because yeah, I, think, I like that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's like you said, p- people think of kata just as solo kata, and, and by that point, you can absolutely agree with them, but it's just because they don't understand actually what it is. Well, mm. well this, this is the point on, on, on that one. So when, um, a little behind-the-scenes thing. I, I really like Stephen Kesting's stuff, by the way. Yeah, I do, yeah. I, I, I think he's, he's, the, the way he puts his information across is great, the way he explains it is really good. For, you know, if you're into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I think Stefan's has to be one of the best channels out there. Yeah. Yeah very likeable guy who presents things very well. Well, he, he did a, a video called uh, Why Karate Kata is Mostly Useless, I think it was called. And then I got loads of messages. You know, I was on holiday in, in, with my family and I got phones beeping. Have you seen this? Have you seen what he... So I watched it. So I agree with him. But from the definition of kata he's using, yeah. and he's not wrong for using that definition because a lot of karate can use it too. You know, his, his points are valid. So anyway, then I got a message from him saying... Um, uh, everyone's telling me I need to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, and I, I messaged back saying, I said, look, for the record, I agree with a lot of what you said, but it'll make for a fun conversation. And I think it, it did, you know. So, um, people give, from my end anyway, people are giving him a little bit of a, you know, a hard time. I've I got people, you know, you, you want to tell him that he's wrong and stuff. I thought, he's not wrong. Some of his criticisms are valid. Yeah. It, depend, it depends on how you approach it. And then I had people, you know, like, I thought, he, 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 when martial artists, non-karateka, um, criticise us from the outside, it, it can be very helpful to, to, to us because it can cause us to self-reflect in a way that we maybe wouldn't otherwise, you know. So. Yeah, that's one thing I think karate as a whole haven't done for a long time is, is kind of look at what they do and just question it. Which yeah. now people are doing it more, I think, which is good. I think people are doing it more, but it comes right back to that very first thing that we were talking about where... Um, level, when we were talking about levels of consent and the fact that if you're doing just as you're told then you're not learning it right but of course most martial arts isn't based on classes like that most martial arts is based on you know, a very very strict instructor telling you exactly what you do all of this questioning, challenging opening up, finding out what things are for and asking a question in class this is pretty new isn't it? Well um, I guess it, it, yeah, it shouldn't be no, I think a lot of no, it comes I'm, from that Japanese culture, doesn't it? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly it's, it's, what I was going to say. It's uh, come and, from and that. And the fact 
these instructors first came over here, a lot of them didn't have great English. Yeah. So it, it wasn't that they were opposed to people asking questions. It was, I, I can't understand your question. You know what I mean? And, and if, even if I can understand it, I don't have the vocabulary at the moment in which to address that question. So it's just do. You know, I can get you doing things. Just do this. You know what I mean? So I, I think that that contributes to it. And then you get Westerners who teach like they were taught. I know people who, who, who adopt a fake Japanese accent and talk in pidgin English as soon as they start teaching. You know, because that's how sensei always did it. You know what yeah. I mean? So, because that's how... Okay. So there's that element, I think. But So, so I think you're right, too. I think it, it, it's, it's not... Um, it's probably getting more widespread, as I think is Western karate get more confident teaching themselves and not parroting the way they were taught initially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go, go and if you look at like, any healthy, uh, my favourite quote, I start most of my seminars with, is, is um, uh, General Patton, who said, if everyone's thinking the same, then somebody isn't thinking. You know, so if you've ever got total uniformity on an idea, it's not that that idea is so wonderful, it's beyond challenge. It's normally because you have an unhealthy dynamic where challenge is not encouraged. So I, I always think you need dissent and you need disagreement and you need questioning. Because the truth of utility doesn't fear questioning. It gets validated by it. It's only falsehoods that get raised by challenging thinking. So when people are you know, um, fearful of challenge or change, it's normally because they're trying to protect something that in their hearts of hearts they know can't stand... Uh, withstand that challenge you know so yeah. yeah if the light of day gets on it it'll evaporate yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> the metaphorical you know, martial vampire <laughs> a martial vampire yeah, yeah, there you yeah. go. There's a name for a podcast, there The Martial Vampire. <laughs> yeah, the Martial Vampire with Ian Abernethy. That's the title. Well, I, I always think, you know, that, like the mythology of trolls is exactly that, right? You know, these things that remain hidden and you can never see them. You know, and the, the instant the light shines on them, then they vanish. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's that, that same kind of thing. Let's, just, let's hide all of this and let's never question it. And that these, you know, there's loads of things that martial arts of all stripes do. They hide away. And when I think we're far better challenging, why do we do this? What's the point of doing yeah. so For example, in my case, you know, I've, I've, I've never had someone be able to explain to me successfully why three-step or five-step sparring is a good idea. Oh, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> so, so I've dumped it, you know what I mean? Because no one's been able to explain to me the utility of it. Yet, so that didn't survive, that process. Now, kata, I, I've kept and I'm more enthusiastic about than, I, than I've ever been because it has proven its utility to me. You know, so I, I don't, you know, I think that the more we challenge and question things, the good stuff gets validated and the bad stuff gets exposed, I think. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the Kumite, my instructor always, he, he, he never really liked the basic Kumite, but he was, I think this speaks more of the time, he was hesitant to get rid of it because he didn't want to, in his head, butcher the art. So what he would do mm. is he would, he would keep the framework, but instead of kind of doing your just block and counter, he would add, you know, block, counter, takedowns, throws, that kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think now, sort of 20 years later than when he was doing it, I think people are comfortable to drop things like that from their syllabus now. Where where did that come from? I mean, when we're looking at karate as a whole, where did that one step, three step? Yeah. Where did where did that actually come in? Yeah, well, and this is a, this, this is the thing, you see. So it, it's not traditional. You know, so the, the idea of butchering the art... It's been a bolt-on since the 1930s and 40s. It's not a traditional part of it. And where it came from was, of course, karate, which people forget, 
the, the way that it rapidly spread was via the university system in Japan. You know, so you get it introduced there uh, uh, in a way that kendo and judo had successfully done. You know, you've got lots of people practicing it. They're, they're selling it not as like battlefield systems or self-defense systems. They're selling it as a character development, physical yeah. challenge, physical exercise. Uh, kendo and judo are huge. Judo in particular. Karate then decides, well, if we're going to be big, we copy the biggest show in town. So we're no longer karate with karate door. We'll use suits and belts and we'll start using, eventually we'll add Dippons and Mazaris into our form of competition and we'll try and steal judo's ethos and, you know, we'll do Katra's physical exercise, but we don't really care about its applications. All of this stuff was happening. Uh, and part of that is, of course, is people look at, you know, you need that to be a legitimate martial art. You need those things. You need a grading system, so we adopt one. You, you, you need that do ethos, so we adopt it. Now, what they do in kendo is they have distancing drills where they'll move forwards with the, the chin-eye, tapping each other on the head as the other person moves back. The person will move back five times, and then you'll move back five times. So karate can see that and then go, okay, if that's what a legitimate martial art has, we should have something similar. Lo and behold, five-step sparring is born. You, you've, you've also got, in the if you look at judo's nagano kata, um, which is their throwing kata, not on all of them, only on the ones it fits. They have a couple of drills where they go um, unbalance the opponent, unbalance the opponent, unbalance and throw the opponent. So it makes sense to do it twice to the point of kind of uh, the, the unbalancing point. They get a sense of the timing and then the third one to throw. You know what I mean? So you'll see they do it on a few different ones where they'll go one, two, throw on three. Yeah. One, two, throw on three. So karate goes, okay, well, if Kendo's doing it, Judo's doing it, we'll do it. So block on one, block on two, do something on three. But of, of course, the problem with that is it encourages so many negative habits to be reactive, to move backwards in a straight line. It, it encourages bad distancing, bad timing. It, it's all kinds of things. It just gets everything wrong. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I, like, people say it translates to then freestyle kumite, but it just I've, I've never stepped back five times in a row, I don't think, when someone's throwing punches <laughs> at me. Because it's just, yeah, you probably got hit a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I don't remember anyway. Maybe I was unconscious at the time, but yeah, it's just one of those things that they say it's going to translate, but I've, I've never seen it. No, no, well, see, I, I, I'm in agreement with you because, and this is why I, because I see it's a martial dead end. The, the, the only thing that step sparring gives you is the ability to do step sparring. So if, if people are going, well, I'm doing it because it, it is, it has become part of the art and I, I enjoy the artistic expression of me and my partner doing it well together. You know, then that, that's fine. But 100% of it is what I call compliant reliant. So there is a place for compliant training, but there should be elements within that compliant training that will survive the move to non-compliant. If yeah. it doesn't, it's pointless. And the thing with the step sparring is when you add any element of non-compliance in, the whole thing disappears. So it's a martial dead end. And then people make straw man arguments for it, like, well, it's good for beginners because, you know, begin, well, okay, yeah, but there's lots of other ways beginners can train that are productive. Yeah. They don't need to do it in a dead end. You know what I mean? Or it teaches distancing and timing. It does. It teaches the wrong distancing and the wrong time. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, there's a place for compliant training. Yes, there is, but that's not the only way to do compliant training. You can do functional compliant training as well. So, yeah, that, that, that to me, you know, I, I remain open. If someone can give me a good argument why we should do it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that argument to be heard, but until I hear that argument, I'm going to be encouraging people to drop yeah. it because I've, I've never heard a good argument for it. Just, I've, I've had discussions with people on online before about, not necessarily that, but when you're talking about the, the guy in the middle of, of all the other people doing bunkai, <laughs> people still try and justify it, just like they would do, do with 
that kind of kumite. I just, I don't know why, but it, those people are still out there. Um, no, they, they, they are, but I think it was um, uh, the, the Marshall uh, Journey YouTube channel, the Aikido guy, Rockus, that runs that one. Oh, I watched your interview with him. Yeah, that was really good, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, well, his thing on that, for so those that have seen me and him chatting, it was a line that he came out with, and I said to him, well, I'm stealing that, and I am, so he's been stealing it. When he said, he goes, yeah, there's a difference between explanation and justification. And I thought, that's brilliant. So, for example, why do you do kata? I can explain why I do. I can explain why that fits in, in, in the wider process. Uh, and then if someone goes, well, why do you do one-step sparring? To me, they're not giving explanations there. They're giving justifications. Well, it's like that some cost fallacy in business. You know, we've spent so much money on this. We have to spend even more money on it, even though it's, it's never proved its value. Yeah. And I think that the sunk cost fallacy appears with, with one step and three step and five step sparring. We've spent so much time on it that if we abandon it, we feel we've wasted that time. So we'll waste even more time on it. Yeah. You know, and I think once people abandon it and realize that they can use that time for other things, it's only a positive thing. But yeah, people feel the need to, to justify bad practices and we, we, you know, we shouldn't do that. I agree. Yeah. Or oh, they don't know that they're bad practices. And like you say, they're just so deeply attached to them because it's tradition or because they've been taught that it's true or, mm. you know, it's just a deep attachment to it and it doesn't feel right in any way. Or maybe fear of criticism from the community that you've done some terrible thing, butchering the art, like Greg said. Mm. You know, well, you don't want that. But that's true. I think the nice thing about that, though, is it, it's... it's it, disappearing now yeah definitely you know, um, more and more people are realizing that, that there are many different karate you know um, there's, there's, it's not like there's only one show in town now if, if you do, if you want to do a version of karate that involves people attacking along the compass points and three step and five to spy if you want to do that wonderful you do that if you don't want to do that you don't have to you know um i always liken it to the old sci-fi movie logan's run which i don't know if anyone remembers that the, 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 the premise of the old film is uh, when people turn 30 they get reprocessed which basically means they get killed right yeah, oh, so, 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 so what happens is Logan's one of the police officers in this futuristic world and he decides that he doesn't want to die and he's going to leap over the wall and they're told that outside the wall there's nothing but a barren wasteland and they need to remain in here because the society they've got anyway they leap out of the wall and suddenly find that this whole community is of old people and young people and everything's fine and I always liken Sometimes the thinking is like that. I can't possibly leave this this group I'm with or this association I'm with because nothing else exists. You know, so I have to do these crazy things I don't want to do. And then they, they finally eventually put the courage to leap over the wall and go, oh, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> There's loads of other people just like me on the other side of the wall. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It is true. that you, I've definitely heard that from people who have felt that way mm. um, from being in, I don't know, an association that isn't welcoming of the kind of, I would say, the, the more modern style way of training. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, in, in the past, you know, when there was like two associations and that was it, you could say, well, okay, yeah, you may have to just suck it up if you want to yeah. remain part of a recognised group. But but now that's, you know, like, again, I had that, again, that was a discussion this week. People said, well, it's okay for you because you can just run off and do whatever you want. I said, well, so can you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you just, you just join the, the groups or... You know, or affiliate with, or make connections with the people who think the same way that you think. You know, and, and there's, there's there's a massive amount of people doing karate that way now. You know, it's it's big and getting bigger. So we we don't have to do things we don't want to do anymore. 
you know. Um, and then again, you know, just to like labour the point, but I don't think there's anything wrong if people like doing three steps or five steps for the art of it, or they just like doing it for the physical challenge of it, or they can put up with it as part of the grading process. Yeah, yeah. No problem with people doing it. It's just when people make um, claims about its utility yeah. that I start to question because, well, like, we can, yeah, you need to come up with a convincing argument and show that's the case if you're making that claim. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, so just going back to something that was also in the training matrix, we were talking about levels in sparring, and I wanted to just get back to that, Ian, and I know that you did. We were talking about impact levels. What, what did you want to say about that? Yeah, I think this is a, um, an, an important one, I think. You know, when we're talking about level of contact, so we've already talked about the, the idea of consent. So if a person feels they're being hit too hard, it should never be the words, I'll oh, just suck it up and, you know, stop being such a wuss and take the shot. Yeah. People should have a right to say, that's too hard for me. But then what you get is, and I think this is like a point that I think needs to be made, is, is people have this idea of, well, you need to learn to take a punch. Uh, and uh, now I was, this is one of the things I've changed my mind on. We used to have a weekly um, heavy contact sparring session. Uh, and, and, and you made the point in the episode where you talked about my podcast that your yeah, brain rings for days after yeah. you end, end up with a bad head. Well, the, the modern medical surveys are showing us that it's not what we thought it was. It's not like a cumulative hit over a long time have a negative effect on your brain. Every single heavy hit to your skull has a negative effect on your health. So, so that needs to be factored in. I think the other thing is as well, this learn to take a punch thing there is a world of difference between getting hit with a glove fist and a bare fist. Yeah. So if the idea is to desensitize yourself to uh, the physical feeling of getting hit, I don't believe a glove fist cuts you anyway. And I believe hitting people forward contact with bare fists into the head would be you know, ridiculously dangerous. Um, um, so the, 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 the contact levels is, is something that I think in, in terms of learning to deal with that, that hit or, or do it, it's the aggression that does that. It, it's, not, it's not going, oh, that's a punch, I recognise that sensation. It's developing students that, that they have those high levels of aggression because the, the, the aggression and the adrenaline will, you know, the, the, the hits almost become incidental because you, you're so pumped up, you, the, the, you don't feel it. That's the way we learn to deal with the shots. Not lining people up and say, OK, class, today we're going to practice taking a punch. Brace yourself, you know what I mean? <laughs> it, 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 which, which, again, if you follow the logic, the, the argument, it's a logical conclusion. If it's all about learning to take a shot, then that's what we should be, because we don't, you know, we don't do that, you know. Yeah. So I, I think the, the sparring, for me, can be um, controlled, not necessarily light, but controlled, so that we learn to get the fist to the target. The pad work will ensure that when the fist gets the target, it's capable of doing damage. And then the aggression training, um, you know, so either dealing with physical exhaustion, um, you know, short explosive things, learning to switch on and switch off, that, that, that kind of stuff, that'll be what will get you to drive through anything the enemy does to you in the, the, the interim. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I was originally very pro-heavy contact sparring. Um, now, not so much. Yeah. I, I always refer back to what Bertrand Ingle, the boxing coach, so a legendary boxing coach, right? Trained loads of world champions. And in Boxing Magazine once, he wrote an article. Um, it was a, two authors. I forget the name of the other guy, but one was writing an article in favour of heavy contact sparring in training. And Bertrand Ingle was writing against it. Now, bear in mind, this guy has produced many world champions. 
And the, the final line of this piece was the only time any fighter should get punched full contact in the head is when they're getting paid millions of dollars for it to happen. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes absolute sense, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that was a... And, and this, this is a guy who trains full contact fighters, but he has them spar like. And I think it's sometimes a misconception. You know, people go, well, MMA fighters spar full contact. They don't. No, I was just going to say, yeah, no, no they don't. No one wants to get injured. No, no. one wants to lose a payday, you know. I mean, they'll they'll grapple hard and they'll you know they'll roll hard on the ground and stuff. But in terms of striking, yeah. you very rarely see them spar full yeah. contact. And when when I've watched them training, I mean, it's not the sort of thing that you put a ten year old white belt in. You know, it's not that kind of light training. No. But they've got all their guards on, head guards, mouth guards, yeah, yeah. big yeah. gloves, shin pads. You know, they're completely protected. Yeah, they're they're giving each other the you know fair amount of walloping, but. You know, it's by it's, no it's a, means it's a long is it way full off. contact. So it's controlled, but that's the thing. So not necessarily light, because it depends on the level and again what people consent to. So it's, um, but it's, it's it's controlled. I also I have a little bit of a problem with the term full contact as well, because I don't believe anybody trains full contact. I, I know it's one of these phrases that you can't help but use it because you know I've used it myself because everyone uses. It. But but full contact, I don't I don't is heavy contact maybe. Full. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm not convinced that would exist for more than a few seconds before people were getting sent to hospitals. You know what yeah. I mean? So um, people may train heavy contact. Not that I believe that wise, but even then, I don't believe they do it full. No, that's true. And then yeah. I also get you know, the, 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 sorry, the, but I was saying that the, the people used to go, "Oh yeah, we use armor." Well, I, I've never come across any armor yet that can survive what I would call a full contact punch. No. Go straight through it and damage the guy on the other side. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good definition there. Heavy contact versus full contact. Yeah. It is more accurate. Definitely when, when is more accurate. When you think about it, though, even even you know you look at MMA guys when they they fight for real, you could argue that a lot of it's not full contact because sometimes it's a shot that's just landed at the precisely the right time. It might not be a heavy shot. Yeah, but it still but does the job. As well, you see, when yeah. No, no one just well, very few people start the fight, ding ding, zoof, run across and just try and knock yeah, the yeah. guy out. Yeah. You no, know, there's that. Some of those, you know, I'm trying to get a response. I'm trying, you know, it, it, I always say that if you look at the last few seconds of an MMA bout or a boxing bout, when when they've opened up and they're really swinging shots, that's the first few seconds of, of self defense when it's degenerated to that point. But you're right, there is a bit of gameplay where they are going a bit light and are conserving uh, energy as well. So, um, and, and you know, when I was doing the, the heavy contact stuff, I was in my 20s and 30s, you see. Now, now I'm like 47. You know, and, and uh, you know, I've got a young family too, and I want to live for as long as possible. I want to see me, you know, grandkids get as old as they possibly can. Um, um, you know, before I kind of shovel off this earth. You know, I, I, I want my health becomes more important. Than yeah, me. definitely. So when, when I was in my twenties, whereas my body was my enemy, it was a thing to be conquered. You know what I mean? N- now it's okay. When it tells me that hurts, I've, I've said, "Shut up." <laughs> <laughs> I'm now going to go. Okay, why? Okay, I'm listening. <laughs> Yeah, you well, know, it so does. I, I, I don't think the um, yeah taking full power or heavy power contact kicks and punches is, is not good for most people, and I'm not convinced it's necessary either. No, no, I would agree for sure. Yeah, we touched on this when we talked about it last yeah. uh, last time as well. But um, you know, coming back to the the drills of life, drills and and sparring, you've got to get used to things coming towards you, and at least you know, making contact with you, haven't you? So that you can mm. react positively, learn to block them and deal with them so that you're training below that level, again, the trigger point, <laughs> so that you actually learn how to deal with stuff. But you don't have to go heavy contact in order to learn how to do that. No. 
Yeah, but you, you can. You, there is a place for um, uh, more intense sparring, so it can be it can be quicker, it can be more explosive. The, the level of contact may go up a little bit. Still not anywhere near heavy, and certainly nowhere near full. You know, uh, uh, so then we are training above the trigger point there to see what existing habits we've got and to see how they perform. You know, so, so people it'll be people being in an adrenalised state when they do that. I think that, that there's definitely a place for, for for that within that wider matrix. But there's but there's a place for training slower as well, of course. But I I, I don't think that training you know, punching each other hard in the head. I, I don't think that's necessary. And on the balance of risk. You know, what are the odds of you being a victim of violent crime? Thankfully, minimal for most people. You know what I mean? So it's um, but but put it this way: if people are training three times a week and they're training heavy contact all the time, the the, the chances of them suffering a long-term injury from that are way higher than them chances of getting an injury from violent crime. Yeah, for sure. Within a given year. You know, so so on, on the balance of risk, you have to say, right, you know, it's better that I take care of myself in training and, and look after my health in the in, in the longer term as well. I didn't always think that way, but but I've, I've came round to that, that opinion. Yeah. yeah, well, it makes sense. It's the risk or reward thing, isn't it? It's, you know, and like you said, you're contradicting your own goal yeah. if you're doing that, really. If you're yeah. looking for self-defence, you are contradicting your own goal. Yeah, if the thing that you're trying to do to protect yourself is going to really hurt you in the long run, then you're definitely <laughs> doing it wrong. Yeah. I, I know this, this is it, you see. I mean, I've heard years of crazy things. Like, I had one guy, this is a magazine article I read years ago about how um, facing a real knife is very different from facing a dummy knife. So in training, we should use real knives so people get... Oh, my God! You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I know people have been seriously injured by training knives as well, but the idea... You know, and, and I thought to myself, he's like, I don't know if he really does that or that's just some macho posturing in an article yeah. or what. But, but, but I thought, he's, it's self-defence advice. If someone said, look, there's this room full of people who are all going to try and stab me with real knives, <laughs> my, my first, don't go there. Yeah, do not go in that room. <laughs> <laughs> Irrespective of whether it's training or not, so I think you know that, that's it. You know, it can't be that the training is the most dangerous place we ever go. Otherwise, it's, it's inefficient training. Yeah. It's not good. People shouldn't be. Get, and it's just bad training. If a guy gets injured and, and then has to miss three weeks of training, well, better train the way that he didn't get injured and he trained for that full month. Yeah. You know, what I mean, that, that'll get more progress. Like, and, and I know you touched on this when we were talking about my seminar, but there's the three things for me. It's got to be productive. It's got to develop meaningful skill it's got to be safe it's no good if people are getting injured all the time you know and it's never totally safe because it's a combat sport but yeah. as safe as we can make it as safe as is reasonably practicable and, and then it needs to be fun as well it needs to be enjoyable because people don't do things they don't enjoy yeah that's that's true safe productive and fun safe productive and fun yeah if you're hitting those three whatever you're doing is good you see and i always use that as a, as a check for myself you know so something could be fun and safe but you just think this is meaningless why are we doing this Three-step sparring might be an example. This is great fun, but it's not productive. So yeah. stop it. It's safe and it can be fun if you're enjoying doing it, but it's not productive. So we yeah. don't do that one. You know, heavy contact sparring. You know, is, is that productive? Well, it, it can be. Is it fun? Well, it can be. Is it safe? No. no. You know what I mean? So if you use those kinds of checklists, safe, productive, and fun, I think it's difficult to go wrong. You know, yeah. you're training. I, mean. I think that that is a brilliant way to end this. <laughs> I'll Safely, productively, and fun. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun talking with you as well. I, um, I I appreciate you inviting me on, and uh, I enjoyed listening to the uh, the report of the, the seminar as well. It was it was really interesting for me to hear 
how what I taught on the day had, had, had been like picked up by you and then passed on. So that that was that was really interesting because a lot of the key points I'd made on the day, I thought, yep, that was it, that was it. So it was nice feedback for me to know that I, I did a decent job that day as well. So yeah, thank you for doing that as well. I enjoyed that. Well, it was it was my pleasure. I actually um, listened back to that podcast many times. It's my job to do the editing. And, uh, and and I said to Greg, he said, oh, it's a really good podcast. And I was like, it's just me banging on for an hour going, oh, I did this really good thing <laughs> <laughs> for like an hour. But it was uh, it was incredibly, it was my first seminar, basically. So it, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I'm, it was a fun day, that one. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it, you see. But this is the thing that I, you know, my aim with the seminar teaching is a little bit different club teaching i'm dealing with people for the long haul yeah so you know i know i've got like two shots every week with my class to try and make them better and i'm going to have them for months and months and years and years and years so it's, it's a slow developmental process when i'm teaching seminars it's right i've got four hours to throw as much information at these people as possible in the hope that some of it sticks yeah did, did, was <laughs> so there any so i'm saying so it's always interesting to find out what stuck because i don't always get that feedback loop you see you do when you go back to the same places over and over again yeah, to see the same people, but it was for me. It was a really interesting experiment too. With it being the first time you, and I know you, you train in a similar way to what I, I do anyway, so it's maybe not entirely objective. But but it was nice for me to um, to to have. It was the first time you trained with me, and then to me to hear what you picked up and I put across. I was I was quite happy with what I listened back. I thought, you know, I was I was patting myself on the back. Thought I I did a good job that day. <laughs> you did do a good job that day. Was there anything that um, I talked about that actually I I had uh, misremembered? No, no. I think the the, the only one was uh, I don't think you misremembered it, but uh, was the trigger point thing was is that it's part of how we train. I, I, when I listened back, I thought someone listening could mistake that as being that we should always be below that point, which which isn't the case. You know, what I mean, so because. If you're in trying to instill a new habit, you should always be below that point. But when you're wishing to test existing habits and to find out where faulty habits exist so you can correct them, then you need to train above that point, if that makes sense. Got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes see, sense. See what, yeah. see what comes out. So, so that was the only... The, I knew what, what you meant, but I was trying to listen to it as if someone didn't know. Then I thought that, that they could maybe pick that up incorrectly. But uh, but that, that was the, the only thing. The rest of it, I, that was it was... I was smiling from ear to ear listening to it back. It was really? fun hearing the, your own things filtered back, you see. And, and it, it was good that it was you doing it too, you see, because um, because you, 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 you've never trained with me before. So so that, that, that made it quite interesting to hear how that mm. had came across, you see. So yeah. Yeah, if it'd been someone uh, who trained with me, you know, five, six, seven or eight times, yeah. then, then by that time, I think, oh, you know, I may have got it wrong the first time, but they heard it the next three times. Yeah. So, yeah. so for, for me, that was that was really interesting. So, uh, yeah, I want more people to, to listen to that because it, it's quite an interesting way to convey the same points. Yeah. yeah. Second hand, and I think it comes across really well. No, I thought you did a grand job. Oh, well, I'm pleased to hear it. Thank you very That's much, good. Ian. That's lovely. Well, thank you very much for the um, for the seminar. And uh, thanks very much for coming on and talking to us today. It's been fantastic. Yeah, it's been enjoyed it a lot. Thank you yeah? very much. So thanks very much, Ian. Thanks for coming on. It's been brilliant to have you. My, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. And uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. We'll hopefully see you in October when you're doing the seminar with Andy, Andy Kid. It's yes, yes, close, yeah, close by. So we'll fingers crossed try and get down there. Excellent. Yeah, look forward to seeing you then. Brilliant. Okay. Cheers, Cheers Bye. Ian. Bye. 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 Brilliant. Well, that was great, wasn't it, Greg? Very good. <laughs> 
All right, well, that's us for now. We will leave it there and look forward to catching up with you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.